I am Madassa Ahmed, Managing Partner at Unitas Communications, and this is PR Unmasked. In this episode, we are joined by the award-winning journalist and reputed author, Peter Ogborn, to talk about his views on the impact of restricted religious freedom in the West, the rampant extremist attacks fueled by Islamophobia, the effects of British journalism, and its seemingly undying subservience to Downing Street, as well as his most recent book, The Fate of Abraham, Why the West is Wrong About Islam. What inspired you to write this book? This isn't the first time you've raised concerns about the way Muslims and Islam have been demonized, but clearly you felt the need to elaborate in this extensive body of work. It goes back a very long way. I was a journalist working for The Spectator. Actually, the editor was Boris Johnson. Uh, when I decided that I really hated the way in which Islam was covered in the West. This was not long after 9-11, around the time of the 7-7 atrocity. But I was greatly struck by the falsehoods which were produced about Muslims at every level, you know, that they were dirty, that they were foreign, that they were violent. And I decided to keep a record and study these reports. So I opened a file on these reports. I read in every British newspaper about Muslims, and I went to investigate them. And without exception, they were false. They were fabrications. And I remember I went up to Manchester. There had been a splash in the Sun newspaper, and it had been all over the broadcast media about a gentleman from Kurdistan who had fled Saddam Hussein and was being accused of having wanted to blow up a target in Manchester. And it was everywhere. I got to speak to him. He was completely innocent. He was being made a monster of in the British press. And yet here he was, a refugee from the evil violence of Saddam and a Kurdish refugee, what's more. And I said to him, I said, talk to him for about an hour. He was traumatized by the way he'd been treated. I said that we in Britain are not like this. We don't treat people who fled terror in their own countries in this way. I apologize. And that is what set me on the path to eventually writing a book. You highlight the implications of structural Islamophobia that exists within British politics and institutions. How do you see this evolving, given that we are already experiencing record levels of Islamophobia in Britain? I only see it getting worse at the moment, and that is another reason I've written the book now. It's partly because we have a global problem of Islamophobia. Just look at what's happening today in India. And I was very shocked when Boris Johnson, as British Prime Minister, I know he's not going to be around a lot longer, but he went to India on a trade mission to deal with Narendra Modi, and he didn't raise what really looks, according to a lot of people who know what they're talking about, like a looming genocide. Britain's failure really to almost offending the regime in Myanmar when the genocide as it should properly be called, of the Rohingya Muslims happened. Just look across the English Channel and look at what is happening in France in the public sphere to Muslims. And you can see the intensification of this in Britain. We're getting, very soon going to see a new policy, I think, towards Muslims. We're going to see the short cross review of the Prevent strategy, which alarms me a great deal that somebody like... Willie Shawcross, a person I know, a perfectly decent man, but it looks very much if he's going to create a tougher security environment for Muslims. How relevant is the history of Christianity and its relationship with the Jewish people and Israel to the debate pertaining to Muslims in your book? In other words, if the former two can find common ground with each other, why can't they do so with Muslims? Yes, I think a great deal about Christianity in this book. Um, it's worth noting that when Jesus Christ walked on this earth, there was no Islam at that point. But although I'm a Christian and I go to church regularly, 
as an Anglican, you have to acknowledge that there's a long history of anti-Semitism in Christianity. And you can see that, you know, not just in the Gospels, I'm afraid to say, but also in the beginnings of the Protestant religion. And so Christianity has been associated with, I mean, all religions can get distorted in this way, but Christianity has been associated with anti-Semitism. Obviously, there was no Islam when Christianity started. But on the other hand, you look at the actions and the beliefs and the teachings of the Christian Zionist churches, particularly in the United States, they are almost demented in some cases in the way they pillory Muslims and see Muslims as having a very awful role in the end times. And these are eschatological religions which are believed in by millions of people in the United States. The fourth chapter focuses on the relationship between the British media, government and British Muslims. Why do you think the Trojan horse affair in particular was aimed to conspire against and target British Muslims? I try and identify in the fourth section of the book, having provided the historical background, in other words, I show the sort of deranged debate which happened in the United States after 9-11 in particular about Muslims and why, why it, 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 the country almost went mad ending up eventually with the arrival of uh, Donald Trump with his Muslim bag on the scene. And I look at the way in which what has happened in France, where you can link back and show the roots of French Islamophobia and the invasion of what was not what the French then called Algeria in 1830 and the and the ethnic cleansing you know, genocide which the French practiced upon the Muslims who lived there when the French arrived. Uh, and then I, I look at the more measured, actually, the more interesting, more learned British connection with Islam through empire. But what you have been getting in the last 20 years, actually, it's for, and I try and give a history of the way in which British government has tried to categorize Muslims. Uh, and I, link I look at three uh, connected ways in which this has happened. One is through the mass media in Britain which is nakedly bigoted and Islamophobic, fabricates conspiracy theories about Muslims. Then we have think tanks, many of them, it's very hard to know who exactly funds them, who have constructed a security environment, which has been made available to politicians, and again, often projects Muslims, although they often call it Islamism, a word which needs to be treated with enormous caution. They construct the idea of Islamism as some sort of fundamental enemy of what they call Western values, or sometimes Judeo-Christian civilization. And then finally, we have the politicians. And something's gone very badly wrong at the heart of the Conservative Party. By the way, not just on this issue, something's gone very badly wrong with the Conservative Party, but under Johnson and before then, too, under Cameron, the Conservative Party was, uh, sort of, has become increasingly bigoted. Islamophobia has become a really noxious thing, and I give the examples and I show how that has happened. To answer your question then about Trojan Horse, the three things came together. And here you had a, an outstanding set of teachers, a brilliant set of schools, which had gave a superb education to Muslims in East Birmingham, and how a sort of fabrication of conspiracy theory was invented. We still don't know exactly how a fake letter that there was a group of Islamist teachers wanting to take over these Birmingham schools in order to peddle Islamist ideas. The whole thing was a farrago of nonsense, 
a kind of mass hysteria, a moral panic against Muslims in Birmingham. And I, and I went and talked to a lot of the teachers. I really found them outstanding people but whose lives have been completely ruined and have been presented as enemies of the state, effectively, in Britain. It's a grave injustice. And until we come to terms with that uh, and have a public inquiry which looks at the truth of what happened, we're never going to have peace on that issue. You note that foundations like Quillen have only served the government to reinforce the traditional narrative about Muslims for political purposes. Quillen is gone now, but others still exist. How would you describe the state of this industry? <laughs> the state of the industry. Remember, Quillian was backed by the British state. It was invented in the British Home Office, and it served a particular narrative, namely that there's a category of good Muslims, or as they're called, moderate Muslims who accepted that so long as you were a moderate Muslim and kept your Muslimness private, you were somehow okay. And then there were these dangerous Muslims who, because they were devout or they felt angry about foreign policy issues, as they're fully entitled to do, by the way, then uh, you were put on secret lists and you were subversive and you're a danger to the state. And although Quilliam itself, as you rightly say, has gone, that central narrative has not gone. But do you think there are torchbearers of that narrative currently? David Cameron, the former British Prime Minister, wrote a piece in the Times newspaper, which, by the way, has a record of fabricating noxious falsehoods about Muslims. He, he wrote a piece based on a paper from the policy exchange think tank, which projected this narrative. The Henry Jackson Society has been doing the same thing, I think, in the Daily Mail. And we have the Shawcross review coming up. And, and Willie Shawcross, I think he's a perfectly amiable chap, but I think he's out of his depth here. And I think he too had a connection with the Henry Jackson Society. And he himself is on record about saying that Islam is a terrible threat to Europe and the West. And these are the people who are creating and advocating official policy towards Muslims. I think this is the problem which needs to be confronted. And if you are totally ignorant of Islam and have never met a British Muslim, you naturally think that these important official people and respectable bodies are telling the truth or making sense. But if you have done as I have done and have travelled up and down Britain, going to so many different communities, talking to so many Muslims, imams, businessmen, community leaders, you realise uh, that it's a farrago of nonsense. And this has now become the dominant Whitehall official narrative, and it has to be argued against. In 1993, Samuel Huntingdon predicted that future wars will not be between countries, but a clash between cultures. Given Samuel's findings and the harmonizing of Islam in Western societies, why does the West continue to perceive Islam as a threat? Going back to what you were speaking about earlier, like what is the premise this is all based on? Well, there are various levels of this. I mean, you go back to the beginning of Islam and the Islamophobia you, in Britain, you can trace back to the Venerable Bede, the father of British history. And he, he has sort of, he, he regards uh, Islam, he, which he gets reports of in his monastery in Northumbria as terrible. Then you get probably the, uh, the greatest, uh, <laughs> I say greatest, the worst Islamophobe of the lot, Pope Urban II at the Council of Claremont, who really sees Islam or Muslims is absolutely barbaric, barbarous, as he sends the Crusaders off to the Holy Land, where they perpetrate, of course, the most awful atrocities. It's very telling to compare, actually, the tolerant environment of the caliphs in that period in the Middle East 
to the utter barbarity of the Christian Crusaders. Today, well, you have to look at 9-11, which was an abominable atrocity carried out by a group of murderous thugs. 7-7 and other episodes, by the way, which is atrocities such as this. And I do deal very directly with this. So many people in the West have interpreted 9-11, Al-Qaeda, ISIS as somehow representing Islam as a whole as being mainstream, representing a violence which is embodied in the teachings of the prophet. It's not at all difficult to show that this is not right. This is, there is no inherent violence. That they are distortions, grave distortions, as sort of endless religious scholars have made clear time and time again. And funnily enough, though, there is a almost a counterbalance, a mirror image between the neoconservatives and that, and that teaching that Islam is at war with the West and the Al-Qaeda or ISIS who are at war with the West. And they almost need each other. And that is at the heart of my argument in the book. There seems to be almost a deliberate attempt to conflate the historic, cultural and norms of Western Muslim communities with terror groups originating from, you know, violence and conflict in the Middle East. But what do you think the feeling is amongst the people that make that conflation as it pertains to what these people actually want? Like, what do they think British Muslims want? And what is it they're trying to suppress? What is the actual thing that is a threat? Yeah. I Apart think, from violence, I'm talking ideologically. Yes, now, there are, there are various currents, I think, here which need to be separated. The first one is old-fashioned racism or bigotry. And so there's no question that Islamophobia is, for many people, though they probably wouldn't admit it, a way of being racist without being racist, because racism is illegal in this country. Anti-black racism or anti-Semitism, for instance, that's hate speech. It's illegal and you're punished for it. To attack a religion is not illegal. You're allowed to do that. So it sort of liberates bigots. And that, I think, is one aspect of it. There's also another one, and it makes Islamophobia quite dangerous, or it's especially difficult, is the liberal left hostility to Islam. The liberal left, the progressive left, tend to be hostile to all religions because they see them as backward, socially conservative, bigoted themselves. But the easiest one to attack is, is actually Islam, because it's most unpopular. You know, there's all sorts of, many people would call it bigotry, and say the Roman Catholic Church, you know, they don't allow women priests. But how often do you see attacks on the Catholic Church for misogyny? It's very unusual. It's much easier to attack the social conservatism of Muslims and if you look at the Trojan horse affair, it shows you how these two strands come together. On the one hand, you have the bigotry of the far right, or the, I say the far right press, the mainstream press, which is just basically hostile to, to Muslims. And then you get the same, I would call it bigotry, but hostility in the case of the Trojan horse affair to the social conservative attitudes of the teachers even though the kind of original hysteria of this fabricated letter was swiftly shown to be unnecessary because the letter was fake, there were still a lot of allegations made against the teachers that they were somehow inappropriate for the 21st century and had special treatment of girls in the school, etc., which meant it was perfectly laudable to set about changing the way in which those schools were run. There's a sort of, whether it's deliberate or not, I don't think it is, 
but there's a coincidence of hostility towards British Islam or Islam across the world between the progressive left and the right-wing bigots. And that makes Muslims uniquely vulnerable, I think, in Britain at the moment. So fundamentally, there is a feeling that uh, we have different values and a different sort of vision for what society should look like. And it's interesting to hear from you that um, a lot of this is, is rooted in the liberal left, which is contrary to the way many others would look at it. So my next question then is... Contrary to your book, what do you think it will take for the West to start getting some things right about Islam? How do you see that process being enabled? The obvious answer, the really deep answer, by the way, is that we should take what we say, our Western values, and start to practice them. We claim to support freedom of speech. We claim to be tolerant. We claim to be compassionate. We claim to support the rule of law. And when it comes to Islam and Muslims, we somehow immediately stop applying those basic tenets of Western civilization. For instance, in the war on terror, we use torture. We imprison people without trial. We were justified in abandoning everything which the West stands for in order to fight in Afghanistan and Iraq and other countries. I think if we were to obey the teachings of the great Western religions and the great Western philosophers, that would be a great start in dealing with the Islamic world. And we should be less tolerant of Islamic rulers who are very hostile to Western values. If you look across the Gulf states, they're often dictatorships which torture their own citizens and so on. And we suck up to them mainly because of oil. In our own country, it's, we have a great tradition of religious liberty. I took a great deal of inspiration from the great conservative founding philosopher, Edmund Burke. He came from Ireland. He was a Catholic. He knew about religious liberty and why it needed to be cherished. And that was in the 18th century. And there is a secular attack on Islam in Britain, which tries to impose a kind of coercive liberalism. You all have to believe the same thing. You're allowed to be different. And actually, that's not a British value. That is a form of authoritarianism. And so we're trying to eliminate Muslims from the public sphere. As far as I'm concerned, the British values mean that you can come to this country and practice your own faith, wear what clothes you wish, believe what you want, advocate what you want politically. Obviously, if you get involved in violence or hate speech, the law will come down on you like a ton of bricks. But you're allowed to be different and British. And that is the whole nature of the British identity. And at the moment, British state is trying to enforce on British Muslims a coercive liberalism, which it doesn't try and do to people of other faiths or other ethnicities, especially different ethnicities or national movements. Etc. Well, fascinating. Thank you so much, Peter. This has really been a delight.